In the beginning, there was Sandy Koufax. The man generally recognized as baseball's greatest pitcher, Sandy Koufax, in the last of the ninth. Okay, well, maybe not the beginning beginning. But for generations of American Jews, even the ones who never saw Koufax throw a single pitch, our identity as people chosen for obsessive sports fandom is rooted in Sandy. He is one out away from the promised land. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. He's like this tradition we've all inherited. But for many Jews, Koufax is a hero not for his Hall of Fame talent on the mound, but for the one day he stayed off it, October 6th, 1965. Yom Kippur. His choice to sell Game 1 of the 1965 World Series, in his prime and with America's eyes on him, is a genesis moment for us. This is not just a baseball story. There were great Jewish athletes before Sandy, and there have been great Jewish athletes after Sandy. But this was a bold display of exceptionalism in every sense of the word. A Jew was the greatest at the great American pastime. And on the holiest day of the year, the best pitcher in baseball put his Jewishness ahead of his own greatness. Any exploration of Jews, sports, and America starts here, in the beginning, with a mythological Hall of Fame pitcher as our baseline. Just like in the Old Testament, there are heroes and villains, successes and failures, promised lands, and seemingly infinite deserts. There's even the occasional curse. Sports is a tool for us to understand ourselves, our dreams, and our disappointments. Here's where our show comes in. I'm Meredith Shiner, and this is The Franchise. Jews, sports, and America. Over the course of this season, we'll be exploring how Jewish culture, American culture, and sports culture intersect. We'll look at how Jews have progressed in America, how anti-Semitism still impacts how we're perceived, and how we continue to triumph despite those perceptions. We'll talk to journalists, athletes, amateur and professional sports nerds, and fans who have spent as much time obsessing over these topics as I have. I'm a child of the 90s in Michael Jordan's Chicago, a reporter, a baseball nerd, and of course, lifelong Jew. I've spent most of my life thinking about what sports mean to me, and now I want to focus on what sports mean to us. No matter who we are as Jews or how we see ourselves in the game, this is our story. So let's get back to Sandy. Sandy Koufax was born in 1935 and raised in the Borough Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. In 1954, he signed with his hometown team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and a few years later, he moved with them out west to Los Angeles. The more I've thought about Jewish American sports culture, the more I'm convinced it starts with Sandy. Not just because of who he was, but also because of his timing. This is not to erase the contributions of Hank Greenberg, one of the first Jewish-American sports icons who also chose not to play baseball in Yom Kippur. But Greenberg made his major league debut in 1933, six years before World War II. The difference between Hank and Sandy? Three decades 
and a radically different America. By the 1960s, American culture was realigning. Everyone was fighting for a seat at the table to be recognized as American. For Jews, Sandy emerged as a confident, talented, and perfect face for all we could be. Here's this guy who defies every stereotype of what a Jew is supposed to be. Sandy's biographer, Jane Levy. He was so tough. It bothered him that Jewish men were considered to be less than tough. And he didn't want ever to be seen as less tough than other athletes and other ballplayers because he was, you know, a Jew. So the first thing that you learn about Sandy Koufax as like a young American Jew in, I guess, the 90s was that he didn't play on Yom Kippur. That's Armin Rosen, staff writer at Tablet and fan of the Washington Nationals, a detail I promise will soon matter. I sat down with him to talk about a piece he wrote in 2019 about Jews and baseball. And of course, Sandy Koufax is always wielded as kind of a reason why you shouldn't do anything on Yom Kippur except be in shul or nap, basically. It's like, oh, well, you think, oh, you have concert tickets. Like, who do you think you are? Sandy Koufax? I was going to say, he was like the perfect Jewish figure. If if your dad was anything like my dad, like, oh, you think you're going to watch baseball on Yom Kippur? The greatest pitcher ever didn't pitch. Growing up, you didn't really even ask questions about his career, its duration, his fastball. It was all just sort of about this one decision that he had made in 1965. Right. It reverberated across time. You didn't even learn whether they won the World Series in 1965, how much of an effect it had, whether he just pitched the next day. Never learned any of that until many years later. It was just the fact that he did not play on Yom Kippur. Let's be real. I could easily dedicate this whole episode to Sandy Koufax. But the thing that interests me most about Sandy is not Sandy, but us. As a kid, I remember being scolded every year that I couldn't do anything on Yom Kippur because if Sandy didn't play baseball on the holiday, I certainly couldn't watch baseball. As an adult, I remember walking into a frame shop, Prince of Sandy in hand, and the guy behind the counter assuming they belonged to my now husband. He asked, are you from Los Angeles? Without missing a beat, my husband replied, no, my girlfriend's just Jewish and loves baseball. Somewhere along the line, Sandy became an avatar for Jewish Americans. He's just this mystical figure. And where there's mysticism, there are curses. The Koufax curse, according to believers, is what happens when Major League Baseball playoffs collide with Yom Kippur, and Jewish players face a choice of whether to play or whether to sit. Bad things happen when they decide to suit up for work. Nothing made these true believers believe in this alleged curse. More than three playoff games in 2019 played sundown to sundown on October 8th and October 9th. There was game four of the American League Division Series between the Houston Astros and the Tampa Bay Rays. Springer at the plate, game four underway, a call, strike one. Then there was game five of the National League Division Series 
between the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. And Fultonavich deals, ball one, and away we go. And then there was another game five in a different NLDS that year between the Los Angeles Dodgers and Armin's team, the Washington Nationals. We wait to see what kind of a script has been written for game five. Each game featured a Jew. Alex Bregman of the Astros. Strikes, third consecutive strikeout. Jock Peterson of the Dodgers. Peterson goes the other way to deep left. Soto goes back. And that ball is, well, it hit that door and wedged down in between. Wow, you don't see that much, do you? And Max Fried of the Braves. Another run's going to score as the Braves cannot secure the strikeout. It is 10 to nothing, St. Louis in the first inning. And in each game, the team with a Jewish player on the roster lost. Carnival of errors here now for the Braves. The Tampa Bay Rays win game four. It's a grand slam. The Nationals seven. The Dodgers three. Do you believe it? The former Dodger breaking hearts in Los Angeles. These three losses could have all been a coincidence. And honestly, they probably were. But Jewish fans seized on the idea that maybe these Jewish players were being punished for playing on Yom Kippur. Which brings us back to Armin, who wrote specifically about the Kofax curse after those games in 2019. I'm a Washington Nationals fan. We were playing a decisive game five uh, that was set to begin kind of during the closing hour or so of Yom Kippur against the Dodgers, who were this dominant team, another team with a very famous Jewish player in their lineup, Jock Peterson. And that game was probably the most staggering and shocking single sporting event involving any team I root for of my entire life. When Howie Kendrick hit that grand slam in extra innings, I was sitting kind of under a skylight in my cousin's house in Long Island, and I just like stared up into the heavens and was like, thank you. <laughs> Something that sports have almost never made me done before as a Washington fan. I mean, that's why Jews love sports. We love the suffering and maybe there will be one moment of glory. This sort of brings me to the piece that you wrote for Tablet about the Koufax curse. All three teams that featured a Jew on the roster ended up losing. And two of them lost in like humiliating quasi-historic fashion. The Dodgers went down because Clayton Kershaw gave up home runs on back-to-back pitches, unheard of. And then the Braves got absolutely clobbered at home in an elimination game. They gave up 10 runs in the first inning. I don't think anything really that interesting happened in the Astros-Rays game, except for the Astros losing. But two of the three were like cosmically cruel events of a kind that maybe could only have happened on Yom Kippur. Who knows? Looking at these same potentially cosmic events and Armin's article, Howard Wasserman got intrigued. He wanted to know whether Yom Kippur played a role in determining winners and losers. A law professor at Florida International University, Howard also dabbles in sabermetrics, the statistical analysis of baseball. He decided to test the Koufax curse, recruiting law students to pour through decades of box scores and producing a comprehensive report for the Fall 2020 Baseball Research Journal. 
And because Howard wanted to know, I wanted to know. So Howard, I was talking to Armin about his piece on the Koufax curse and how he basically summoned you from the universe because he had written in his piece, it's a theological stretch to claim that there's some kind of Koufax curse at work whereby Hashem punishes teams whose star Jewish players don't set out on Yom Kippur. That would be an absurd and completely non-disprovable thing to assert. And then you came out from the ether and decided that you were going to try to either prove or disprove that there was some sort of higher order influence for the very small statistical sample of Jews who have played on Yom Kippur. Can you walk us through your findings and your research in your own words? I did the study with 36 players, 18 pitchers, 18 non-pitchers. The number choice was intentional. I just thought it would be a fun framing device. I used 1966, so the year after Koufax set out the World Series. I used that as the starting point and then uh, carried it forward. And what we came up with is that there were about 120 total games in which a Jewish player played on Yom Kippur. The big finding, what, what I thought was, was most interesting was that the teams don't do well. So the, the teams in those 120 games are 53 and 67. So 14 games below 500. And they gave up 114 more runs than they scored. The teams do really, really poorly when Jewish players play. I love that your finding was basically like, we would have expected them these teams to lose. They did lose. And maybe the answer is, <laughs> there's no real curse, but no one should play on Yom Kippur. Jewish fashion, Howard and his team of math nerds asked a big question and came away with no definitive answer. No one would lose on Yom Kippur if no games were scheduled that day is not quite the stuff of stone tablets. So maybe there are no curses, but something struck me as I thought about Yom Kippur 2019. It wasn't really a big deal. Three playoff teams had a Jewish player on their rosters. Not one of them sat on Yom Kippur. And yet outside of a select group of nerds, like Armin, Howard, and me, no one really seemed to care. Of course, Koufax is one of the greatest pitchers to ever live, and it was the World Series. But these playoff games were pretty big too. And all three of these players, Peterson, Freed, and especially Bregman, were important to their teams. Of the three, Bregman has also been the most outspoken about his Judaism once telling Sports Illustrated that he, like so many other 13-year-old boys, proclaimed in his Devar Torah, his bar mitzvah speech, that he would give back to the world by becoming a professional baseball player. So how did we get here? How did we get from one of the single most important moments in American Judaism, Koufax setting out a World Series game, to basically a regular weekend of October baseball? with no one batting an eye at a handful of Jewish players taking the field. There are three possible explanations for this. One, Jews have become so accepted by American culture that they don't need to be as vocal about their Jewishness. Two, 
Baseball is no longer the touchstone of American culture it once was in the 1960s. Or three, American culture itself has evolved so much over the past few years that the way athletes can and do make political statements has changed radically. All of these theories are plausible, and it's hard to discount how internalized fears about anti-Semitism may factor into any one player's decisions. But I am interested in this idea that famous Jews today might feel less of a need to be demonstrative about their religion than their forebears were. And what about us? Do we no longer need our Jewish athletes to publicly express their Judaism in the way Sandy did? I talked to Atlanta-based sports writer Jeff Schultz of The Athletic, who told me something that's never been reported about that fateful day in 2019 and Atlanta Braves pitcher Max Fried. In the closing hours of Yom Kippur, the Braves starting pitcher Mike Fultonevich gave up four runs in the first inning and was pulled with the bases loaded. The stakes could not have been higher, and the Braves called on Freed, traditionally a starter, to try to salvage the game. Years later, before we talked, Jeff asked Freed about his improbable appearance that day. I said, if you knew you had to pitch that day, or the potential you might pitch, you didn't fast, did you? And he said, actually, I did fast. Wait, 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 wait. 20-second timeout. When Max Freed, who admittedly didn't expect to come in before sundown, entered the game, it was on an empty stomach? I think he had sort of been torn on pitching that day. But he said, well, you know, the game was sort of twilight, which is true. It was a 5 p.m. game. So it was near the end of the holiday. Now, I don't know if that had anything to do with the fact that he didn't pitch well. I think it was more the circumstances. But for what it's worth, he had given it a lot of thought. In a perfect scenario, if he had to have come in, it would have been in the, you know, sixth or seventh inning or eighth inning, at which point the sun would have been completely down. So, yeah, that was the, that was the situation. And this reminds me, um, I didn't grow up watching Sandy Koufax either, but I remember growing up and, you know, hitting that time of year every year and my dad being like, well, you know, if Sandy didn't pitch in the World Series, then you certainly can't, you know, go to the movies with your friend on the day off after show, right? This was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. The old Jewish guilt thing. Yeah, that was something I feel like a lot of us grew up with. And I wonder, you know, Sandy plays that role for so many people. I think he might still play that role for a lot of people, at least younger than me. Do we need other athletes to sort of take that position and take that stand? Like, what would that meaning be if someone like Max Fried actually decided that maybe he would sit? Or Alex Bregman, who's one of the few people he talked about his Devar Torah in Sports Illustrated. And I love it because he's one of the few, like, Jewish boys who stood up at the Bima and was like, I'm going to change the world by being a professional baseball player. and might be the only, like, Jewish boy in the history of Jewish boys to actually see <laughs> yeah. that, that promise through. I think it'd be very impactful, not just for, for Jews. I think it'd be impactful for somebody of any religion who said, I'm doing this for my religion. I think we kind of see it in bits and pieces occasionally. I think we're starting to see that narrative, though, in other areas. I think we see it in social justice. We are seeing that a lot in mental health right now, obviously, whether it's Naomi Osaka. Simone Biles. The more people speak openly about, about things like that, I think the more things sort of become destigmatized. Religion isn't destigmatized, doesn't need to be destigmatized. But I think it's more about, look, this is what's important to me, and I need to take care of me. I need to do what's more, most important to me. 
And I think the more we, we see things like that, whether it's mental health or social justice or whatever it is, I think the more widespread it's going to become. And we, maybe we do get to the point of somebody saying, I can't pitch a game on that day because of that holiday. Now, obviously, that's not the way particularly professional sports is built these days, okay? We have events not just on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. We have it on Good Friday, Easter, Christmas. I mean, one of the NBA's biggest revenue, you know, TV ratings days of the year is Christmas Day and night. The networks and the leagues know that's when people are home watching TV. And there's a lot of dollars at stake. There's a lot more dollars at stake now than there were back when Sandy Koufax was pitching. I don't think professional sports is going to change. I think there's just too much money at stake. But maybe somebody would do it. I don't know. It would be it would be very courageous. Jeff makes a great point. As athletes across sports and the world become more socially active, how Jewish athletes express themselves and their values is evolving. Maybe it's NFL Pro Bowler Julian Edelman putting Stars of David on his cleats after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in 2018. Maybe it's WNBA superstar Sue Bird wearing a Vote Warnock shirt in the 2020 elections. And maybe it's Giants manager Gabe Kapler announcing he would sit out the national anthem indefinitely to protest political inaction on gun violence in 2022. Or maybe, in our times, athletes being Jewish and themselves is the statement. And maybe that's enough. Dayenu. Let's see, you've had four no-hitters, a perfect game, you have struck out 18, you have a World Series record of 15 in one game. Where does this one fit in as far as thrills are concerned? I don't know, Vinny. Uh, this has got to be as high as any of them. This whole year is a thrill. When Sandy set out Game 1 of the 1965 World Series, the Dodgers lost. They then went on to win all three games he pitched, including the decisive Game 7, on their way to becoming champions. Koufax retired the next year, at just 30 years old, because he didn't want to lose the use of his pitching arm. In some ways... Sandy's early retirement froze him in his state of perfection, adding to his mythological place in Jewish lore. But in 2022, do we really still need Sandy as our model? I think about the 2021 Major League Baseball season, when Jock Peterson was traded to the Atlanta Braves. Before the playoffs began, Peterson texted his personal jeweler and said he wanted to quote-unquote make a fashion statement. He wanted to wear a custom strand of pearls. It was a uniquely bizarre decision that became the symbol for an entire postseason. During the Braves' title run that year, Peterson somehow made wearing pearls and Vogue. A bunch of Southern Bubba's in the stands paid actual money in the Braves' team store for fake pearls to be just like Jock. When his personal strand broke before Game 4 of the World Series, Peterson flew his jeweler from Los Angeles to Atlanta to restring his necklace. All the while, Peterson was running a Burgundy Boys wine club with his teammates, popping bottles so expensive, I can't even imagine drinking them. This was the most aspirational Jewish energy I'd ever seen. My aforementioned husband, a Braves fan, was at one of those World Series games in Atlanta. And me? 
I was at home, by myself, on our couch, in a Jocktober shirt, with a big-ass glass of red wine. I was reveling in the moment that a Jewish player had become this cult figure. And honestly, it feels heretical to even say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I might want to be more like Jock and less like Sandy. In the decades since 1965, when Sandy sat, Jews have evolved with American culture. In some ways, there's less pressure for us to be that model minority Sandy was, and still is. We can be who we are. We can be flashy and irreverent. We can fast on Yom Kippur without anyone knowing. We can leave our mark on the game in ways we never thought possible. This series is about embracing, celebrating, and challenging the multitudes of us. Sports provides the lens through which we can explore who we are, where we've been, and where we are going. We are the superstar athletes and the haggard journalists. We are the obsessive fans and the harshest critics. We are the striving front office executives, and we are the despised team owners. This show is our story, told through our love and obsession with sports. Next up on the franchise, what happens when we take that love too far and build idols only to watch them fall apart? I'm Meredith Shiner, and I'll see you next time. Sandy, thank you so very much. And now go on back and sit down and relax a little while. Thank you, buddy. The Franchise is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Meredith Shiner. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Our logo is by Kurt Hoffman. Special thanks to Tablet Magazine and the Tablet Studios team, including Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman Ader, and Jerome Rusquet. And the Meredith Shiner team of Josh and Carter Zembic. Please rate and review us wherever you can listen to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this series, tell a friend. You can write to us at franchise at tabletmag.com. And for more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash the franchise. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Hey, what are you still doing here? But since you're here, here's Sandy Koufax pitching to Mr. Ed as a treat. Sandy, nice and easy, huh, buddy? Okay, John. <laughs> you know, that's the smartest horse I ever saw. Well, he's not so smart. He forgot to touch second base. Nailed it. <laughs>